this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Outdoors in partnership with Warriors Quest is brought to you by Martin Archery, the number one archery company. Martin Archery combines leading edge modern technology with innovative design to give serious bow hunters and target archers what they demand. Axis Camera Arms for a camera arm that offers a smooth, full range of motion without restriction, lightweight, easy to pack, the name speaks for itself the Axis Revolution. Conquest Sense for more than 15 years, Conquest Sense has been selling premium hunting sense to hunters around the country. Bojax Inc., the best designed archery dampening system. Simmons Optics, everything you need, nothing you don't. Ozonics, undetectable, undeniable. Dry shod waterproof footwear, the most wearable rubber boot. Veteran innovative products, VIP broadheads. The first and only scalpel sharp broadhead with dual spring variable cutting width suspension for superior penetration. Elevated safety systems. Rancho Rio Lindo in Uvalde, Texas. Piney Woods Hunting Lodge in Eufaula, Alabama. This week's episode, we're joined by Tyke and Scott uh, as they're coming down to the wire on a backcountry rifle hunt on a D3 through D5 tag in California. Uh, we're going to cover the prep that's gotten them to this point and their plan for success. So this um, D3 to D5, that's Northern California, correct? That's central. Central? Yeah. So, you guys, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Introduce yourselves. Tyke, I know you've been on here several times with Scott. This is your first time. Okay. Yeah, my name's Scott. I've uh, been hunting since I was a little boy uh, in, in California only. Uh, the only thing I've hunted out of state so far is uh, some upland birds. And so... Uh, Spent, spent quite a few years here in the state hunting and, and trying to figure out the game. Uh, it's a, certainly a tough place to, to uh, get to where you can be successful in, but uh, over the years I've had uh, fairly decent success uh, through perseverance, and uh, I, I'm just uh, in love with hunting and uh, hope to be able to have many more adventures in the future. So... In addition to the elements in the terrain and just good old tough luck, uh, what challenges are you guys facing hunting in the state of California that the, the state places on you as an individual hunter? Well, I'll jump in on that one. Uh, for, for one thing, this, this particular zone that we're going to be hunting in uh, on our upcoming trip here is a... Uh, zone that they give out uh, a lot of tags uh, 35,000 to be exact for these three three zones and uh, with that kind of hunting pressure they, it, it is an over-the-counter tag but it's sold out every year for I think the last five or six consecutive and uh, the, the region is is not overly huge and so that puts a lot of hunting pressure on these deer and uh, you end up uh, 
seeing a lot of nocturnal animals uh, laying in their beds. Uh, and unless you're out there pushing them somehow, uh, it's, it's going to be really hard to find one up moving around uh, during the day when you're looking for them. Um, in, in addition to that, I, you know, I'm, I'm uh, no wildlife resource officer or anything, but, it, but uh, I think around 40 years ago, uh, they outlawed any kind of, of uh, hunting of lions, which is uh, the biggest predator for deer in our state. And uh, the, the, those numbers have, of, of lions have just skyrocketed here. And so these, these deer are, are not only being pushed on by those 35,000 hunters, but uh, countless numbers of lions are in there. And it's uh, it really is creating animals that uh, are very spooky and are are very cautious uh, when it comes to uh, trying to pursue them. Yeah, another thing, another thing I think that is one of the challenges is just the fact that a lot of people they take care of their pet deer in the backyard, and so you're not getting getting the huge migratory herds and things like that. I got I got deer that come to my backyard all the time. I can't do anything about them, uh, you know, and so. They they just come in, eat the roses, eat all the stuff that we don't want them to, and then uh, leave like a ghost in the night. And I, and they never leave. They just stay the entire uh, year round. They're they're here all the time, and they're not spooked by anything. Uh, when, when you get into heavy rut and stuff like that, uh, you see them. They're getting hit in the road all the time because they're not they're not going anywhere like they normally would uh, back you know before when they were migratory. You know, Tyke, I know me and you talked uh, a little bit earlier this afternoon about some of the issues you guys are having with the non-hunting populace up there in California as far as the buying of yeah. tags. and. Yeah, there's there's a group somebody put together that, that raises money to buy over-the-counter deer tags, and then they don't actually go hunting. Um, and so, you know, always in years past, when I was growing up as a kid, you could go last week in the deer season, and you could buy an over-the-counter tag if you already filled your first tag. Uh, now we're getting to the point where they sell out before deer season uh, most of the time, and that's because you got these. There's some groups out there that are buying a tag to save a deer's life, and it just makes it makes it more difficult uh, later in the season to be able to get a tag. Uh, and so that, uh, to me, it seems a little bit asinine, but it it is, I guess, what they, they what they think they need to be doing. I agree. It is a little bit. Uh unorthodox but you it's money towards conservation and eventually they're going to keep pushing those tag numbers up because when the quotas of deer being harvested isn't met uh, they, they need to be able to maintain that healthy herd uh, but you mean to tell me that you have you you can't just quote unquote take care of those deer in your backyard <laughs> i mean yeah we could i could handle them but it's just uh you know, it's it's one of those things, and I'll I'll be uh, no less vague than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, I understand you've got some some prior experience with this, even from this year on an archery hunt you did earlier this year. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I just got back uh, from a, a pretty lengthy uh, backcountry 
uh, mule deer hunt. Uh, it was an archery hunt, so uh, not necessarily entirely per- pertinent to this podcast, but uh, I did get into uh, an area. I, I uh, spent about uh, nine days total with two days of travel on that, so um, that, that had me in the in the woods for about seven days, and uh, most of those days uh, I was on bucks. It was a it was a very nice area. Um, you know, up above Timberline, uh, it, the terrain was such that there was kind of a, a knife ridge that ran along and, and uh, with lots of bowls off to one side. And uh, we were able to find some find some nice animals in there. Uh, had a shot opportunity uh, come through that uh, I was kind of... Uh, place like in the middle of the moon and uh trying to sneak up on these bedded deer and i was only able to get so close uh the actual distance is is not so important as uh as it is that uh it was it was far enough that uh when i was laying on my belly and i and i peeked around the rock with my rangefinder. I, I was trying to keep as low of a profile as I could, and I had that rangefinder turned sideways, and and range range the deer in its bed, and then uh, knocked my arrow, and and got up and shot and ended up uh, hitting just about two inches uh, over its over its back, uh, directly in line with its vitals, and uh, after the fact standing up ranging that same area where that deer was uh there should have been a yardage cut applied to that rangefinder and having that rangefinder turned sideways did not allow it to make that cut and so it was kind of a it was an awesome opportunity awesome experience i, I was stalking for about uh 45 minutes uh from where i first saw these deer to move about 80 yards um, to get into what I what I knew was the closest I was going to be able to, and uh, didn't end up coming away with a buck on that trip, but uh, had a lot of action. Um, went with a friend, and and he also uh, shared in the action, and we we ended up with tag soup, but uh, we had a fantastic experience. Uh, one cool thing was is that there was uh, quite a few grouse in the area, and we were able to. Uh, shoot a grouse with our bow, and and roast that over a over a backwoods spit. And man, those things are, are phenomenal. If if you guys ever have an opportunity to, to get you a grouse while you're in the backcountry, it it is worth every bit of it. Yeah, about the only thing we get the opportunity to kill out here in the backcountry of uh, the southeast is a good old possum squirrel. Squirrel or armadillo. Well, I, I, I did want to point out too. He said, uh, you know, he's above the the wood line. Um, so when you have mountains and you get up high enough, the trees stop growing, and so that's that's where he was up above where the trees stop. I know in Florida, you guys uh, don't deal with that, but but that's what he's talking about. No, I would have to travel uh, quite a uh, at least probably almost about a day by car. To and get that much high. elevation, and yeah. Mountains are that high. Now, I'm, in order to get above the timberline, you'd have to drive west. Yeah. 
uh, and it, it yeah, would be about was, a day's uh, drive by car. What I was we doing was a, uh, it was basically <laughs> some some small juniper trees and uh, uh, sagebrush desert type area. Um, so that it made for a really neat terrain to find the deer in because you know time time spent buying the glass would would result in in animals popping up for you. So um, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a good trip. And you know I've had that same issue with the with the rangefinder you were having, uh, except for my rangefinder just didn't at all have the technology to compute that angle, um, mm. and I, I missed a buck three times in the same hunt <laughs> at at, at, at twenty five, thirty, and forty five yards. Uh, yeah, well, you know I, I know that, that shooting three uh, D, even my rangefinder, which is a which is, uh, I think I spent three hundred and fifty dollars on the thing. It's a little pulled, and and for I would say to about a thirty degree angle, it gives you a pretty decent cut. Once you go beyond that, um, I mean it, it's it's completely worthless for giving you a cut. So, I mean if you're going to be shooting deer off of cliffs and things like that, and an angle finder and and knowing a little bit of trig- trigonometry is your friend. Um. I've got an awesome rangefinder now from one of our, our sponsors, Simmons, and I look forward to getting to use it this year and and check it out. It's got that, that technology in it to compute those angles. So once I can get out in the woods and do a little bow hunting, we'll put that to the test. Right on, man. But uh, so what have you guys done so far? Because we're, we're coming to you now pre-trip. I don't know that if I, I covered this yet. And then when you guys get back, we're going to do a, another one post-trip. And hopefully we've got some successful hunting stories. Uh, but we'll have stories nonetheless. But what are you guys doing so far, or have done so far, to prep for the terrain you're going to be in? I've been, uh, so I started, I don't know, I, I decided to go on the hunt about uh, um, five weeks out from opening. And so... Uh, I've kind of had short time. I've been trying to gather this stuff up. I, I immediately started taking some walks with some weight on me, um, trying to hit as many hills as I could find. And um, as, as far as getting ready, that's that's kind of what I've been what I've been doing is uh, you know drinking a lot of water, and turning turning the beer dial way back, and uh, and trying to uh, shed some LBs off my middle so I can add them to my back. <laughs> yeah so uh for me I, I i did a lot of uh i, I tried something new this year and I, I i kind of learned um that i won't be doing that again in the future uh but uh leading up to this this recent trip i took i was doing a lot of body weight type exercises uh uh some cardio involved in it like uh jumping jacks jogging in place that kind of stuff but but like a lot of uh uh, planking and sit-ups and push-ups that kind of stuff i i wanted to see and 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 then squats in the air that that type of thing i wanted to see what that uh, additional strength would do for me in the backcountry coming into this trip uh and and what I realized is is that that was far inferior to what I did in the past, which is uh, loading my pack up with as as much with or starting with nothing and climbing hills, putting my pack on, loading it up, you know, ten pounds, adding five, adding five, 
going up and down mountains is uh is the best thing you can do i kind of i kind of uh have an advantage that i live right next to a river canyon and so um i i basically have this real steep area that i can climb in and out of and and it's my opinion at this point that there's nothing you can do better to prepare for a trip like this uh than, than put weight in a pack and carry it up a hill and then also carry that weight down a hill because what's going to happen is you're always worried about those uphills but you you get a heavy pack on and you start going down a hill it's going to smoke your knees because you don't your body doesn't use those uh muscles that resist falling that much they use the muscles that that promote climbing a lot but when you know these are minor muscles that you have in your in your body that that keep you from just falling down the hill as you're descending and anything you can do to to gradually strengthen those up ahead of time is is going to be your friend you won't be waking up with sore knees and and sore hips and stuff like that so um that that's that's a real big advantage is to make sure you go up and down the hills um another thing uh if, if you have a comment on that stop me here but uh, another thing, when I when I first read that that question, the very first thing that popped into my head was something to prepare for that is good socks and good boots, because nothing will smoke your hunt faster than your feet going out on you. And uh, if if your feet are all torn up and blistered from this rugged terrain, um, you are not going to have a good time. You're not going to go hard enough and you're not going to be successful most of the time. So I think that, that kind of goes into um, into prep a little bit because if you're getting, if you're uh, looking at trying to buy like a new pair of, of hunting boots or something, you should probably get those with enough time to wear them throughout your training so you have an opportunity to break those in, break your feet into them, and toughen your feet to any hot spots those boots might, might cause. You know, in the Army, we did, I'm, I'm pretty used to carrying weight on my back and and so i kind of have an advantage there and that it just felt like uh you know it just felt like home when i threw another uh, rucksack on my back and went for a walk and uh so i just started i started pretty light pretty lightweight as well but uh, i made sure i had the shoes i was going to wear on my feet for for all the walking that i'm doing um and and ditto to good socks (laughs) and you know that's one of the things We've always stressed doing this on a budget, but one thing we have have talked about every single time we talk about one of the places not to skimp money wise on is is on your feet. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean down here in the southeast where we're at having shoes that are going to provide you with a lot of support to walk very long distance and all that stuff. But down here it boils down to. Having shoes that are going to provide you enough support uh, to get you through some uneven terrain, but you need to have a very good waterproof shoe down here because I think we spend more time. We spend more time in the water doing anything. Ankle deep water, I mean, it, yeah. It, it doesn't matter whether we're duck hunting, whether we're deer hunting, squirrel hunting. We're in, we end up going through water somewhere. I mean, most of Florida is small for a lake, so. And having <laughs> wet feet is going to ruin a hunt just as quick. You're gonna get, even though you don't walk as far, your feet being wet is gonna give you the blisters. Oh yeah, amen, man. <laughs> I, it, that's 
And, and, and not only that, as soon, if, you, if you're sitting in stand or something like that and your feet are wet, you will not get warm until you get out of that stand. No, not until that's you it. get the feet that's it. <laughs> And that's one of the things I've always stressed, too, is, you know, we, we do a lot of stand hunting down here, and I'm one that if I'm going to drive my pick, if I have to drive my pickup truck an extended extended way or I've got to walk a long ways, I'm going to carry my thick layers if it's a cold enough morning for me to be wearing stuff like that, carry my warm clothes in my bag. I'm going to walk to where I'm going to hunt in a thinner layer, and I might be a little cold on the way there, but I can climb up in the tree, I can climb up in the stand or whatever, and I can put on that warm stuff, and then I'll warm up there. But if I wear it to it, I'm just going to sweat. And then once I start sweating, I'm going to be cold all day long. That's it. So what kind of weather are you guys looking at right now up there? Over there. Well, you know... It's really hard to say uh, a month out of what we're, what we're going to run into, but I, but I can say that I've seen everything from from uh, days uh, in, in this particular area, everything from days in the, the mid-80s uh, to nights in the 50s to uh, days in the 40s and nights in the teens uh, on this exact same weekend that we're going, so... Uh, it, it's really uh, hit and miss, and, and man, I've spent some cold nights, and I've, I've spent some nights that weren't so rough, but if, if I had to guess, I, I would guess we're looking at something like days in the 70s and nights in the 40s. That's not too bad. That could make for some pretty good hunting weather. That yeah. should, be, should be nice weather. I looked into Almanac, and according to them, uh, that weekend, it, it, could be, it could be rainy and cold, and, or it could be, uh, you know, very nice, uh, 70s and lows 40s. So that it's a pretty unstable time in the in the mountains where we when you have that in the fall, it just is unstable. It's kind of hard to predict what's going on, and and some of those choices about what what we're going to take in with us are probably going to change uh, the day before we leave when we start when we actually got a pretty reliable forecast for where we're going to be. Right. So, yeah, and, 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 you know, afternoon thunderstorms are, uh, are kind of a constant, uh, in, in the Sierras there. And so we're, we're looking at, uh, maybe at as little as 10 minutes of rain a day to, uh, as much as an hour. Um, and that's, that, that's something that doesn't, uh, really weigh into my gear choices personally, because, um, you know, I'll just kick up under a tree or something for for the rain to to get over with, and then uh, if you have halfway decent clothes on at all, uh, that that usually happens around two or three, four in the afternoon, something like that. You have you have quite a few hours of daylight left, and uh, you, you can get dried back out before the night comes. So, so um, how does how does the I, rain? Th- Go ahead. Well, I, I, I had nothing to say. How does the rain affect the the, uh, the deer moving out there? I know back here, back east, if it's going to rain, I'm, I'm going to be in the woods. I, I've I've seen some of the biggest deer, uh, and I actually missed with my bow at 30 yards the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life sitting through a rainstorm. Uh, and as soon as it quit, the deer seemed to get up and move real good. They move some in light rain, but it seems as soon as that rainstorm's quit, the the woods just come alive. Is that the same? out there as it is here 
Well, you know, I, I don't know that I've noticed a, a direct pattern. Um, I do know that, that one pattern I've noticed is that if it's raining, they are not moving anywhere. They're doing the same thing I am a lot of times, ducking up under a tree. Um, and and one advantage is if, if you don't mind getting wet, you think, you know, if it's early enough in the day and, and you know for sure that you can get kind of wet and, and dry back out before the nighttime, uh, you know, getting out and walking and, and doing some still hunting during that rain uh, can be really advantageous because you have that extra extra noise in the woods to, to cover your movements. Um, but I, I, I can't say as though I've noticed, you know, some kind of a big movement after these little rainstorms. Yeah, I think it would have to be a pretty, pretty decent rainstorm to get them uh, where they were bedded down long enough. Uh, to where they wanted to get up and move after it was done. If they're only bedded down for an hour, uh, they're not necessarily going to want to get up and move after. But if they've been bedded down for six hours, they might want to get up and move around once that rain stops. You know, it could really be here down the southeast when we have those rainstorms like that. We're seeing a temperature drop of 10-plus degrees right after that rainstorm. For Usually, this time of year, it's going to be a fairly short period of time. But as we get further into fall... It cools off before the storm. About this time of year, it's gonna cool off a little bit before the storm, and it's gonna get worse after the storm. Later in the year, it'll be like that. We'll have that cooling down period, and that's when the that's when the deer seem to get up and move. So, um, what kind of shots do you guys expect to take, and how have you guys been practicing for that? Well, Scott, you know uh, what it looks like up there. Yeah. So, I mean, what. What, what's going to be happening a lot is uh, a lot of – this this may be answering a later question. I don't know. But it, it's, it's kind of a lot of, of uh, walk uphill in an open area, get yourself into a timber patch, and kind of zigzag, zigzag your way down the hill, moving real slow and glassing, and, and attempting to find these animals in their bed, uh, unaware that you're there. Uh, getting the wind in your favor, that kind of stuff. So, um, it, with, with that type of hunting, um, it, with, with this this particular trip, we're not going to be above timberline. We're going to be uh, in scattered timber, uh, right below timberline. And so there, there's uh, some open areas, but but a lot of uh, I guess smaller patches of timber. And so moving through those patches of timber. Uh, where the, where the deer are bedded during the days, uh, I I would expect like a long shot for this hunt to be uh, 200 yards. Uh, that would be a very long shot for this hunt, actually. Um, so, I, I but what you will deal with is is uh, uphills and downhills on shots, particularly downhills. Um, I think uh, and and a lot of shots offhand. And so, uh, and the, the kind of shooting that I've been doing is, is offhand shooting and uh, shooting at targets that are downhill and, and, and learning good body positioning for uh, that type of shot where, where it's not just a standard, you know, uh, straight up on your body, you know, bending at the waist, keeping the rest of your body nice and squared up and, and, uh, and then uh, good breathing control and, and executing the shots on angles like that. Um, so as, as far as, uh, you know, long shots and, and, 
you know, learning the wind and all that kind of stuff, those factors aren't going to be in there for us on these too much. And so it's, it's, it's really about body positioning, I think. What kind of angles are we talking about up there, Stone? Uh, well, it really depends on, on uh, where you walk, but I, I would imagine that you could get into some, uh, get into a situation where you're taking a shot on a uh, 25 to 40 degree angle, and, and there, there are some cliff situations there, and, and uh, we all know that, or well, maybe we don't all know, those deer do like to bed at the bottoms of those cliffs, and so... Uh, you, you could potentially find an animal in its bed and be shooting nearly directly down onto it. Okay, well, I mean, but, uh, a 40-degree angle is uh, is not a whole lot. Um, it isn't something that you can really uh, take for granted. That's a pretty high-angle shot. It's not, it's not terrible, but... Yeah, especially when you start talking about 200 yards or something, that a 40 degree angle, you know, there's potential there to miss. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you're not if you're not thinking about what you're doing, one, one thing that I'm uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do a calculation here real quick while I'm talking, but uh, you know, the uh, the rifle that I'm using uh, from zero to 200 yards is basically the same point of aim and so if there's a cut there for me uh i, I shoot a rifle sighted in uh at 200 yards um if there's a cut cut there on a 200 yard shot to me it's it's uh pretty much insignificant because i'm talking about a, a one inch variance uh which is going to put me in the, into the kill zone uh, regardless so well, you're talking about you got a one minute gun, or what is that? Uh, my my gun's about a one point two five with the copper ammunition that's required of us Californians. Oh yeah, we forgot to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so at, at two hundred yards, you're talking two and a half inches with a you said a one inch variance at 40, 40 degree angle. Yeah, I'm, I'm figuring it out right now. I'll let you know uh, what the cut is on, on 200 yards, uh, line of sight at 40 degrees. So what are you guys shooting? Well, I'm, I'll let him do some math. I'm, I'm, uh, I've got a uh, Mark 10 Model 98 Mauser uh, that was that my dad built and bedded the, the stock and stuff in and uh, gave me when I was for my 16th or 15th birthday, something like that. Uh, it's a 270 Winchester, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty good. I've got I'm working on load development for it right now because I gotta figure out what's gonna do with these solid bullets. Um, hopefully, I can get it down in the minute range, but we'll see what I end up with. And so that's that's what I'll be on. I got a uh, one to one to ten by fifty loophole scope on it. And you know, Tyke, before I ask this question, I had a pretty dang good feeling you were shooting that 270. Uh, but I didn't know if you were going to try out the 6.5 well, which, or which not. One? <laughs> yeah, how many do you own? 270s. I, I have that. I have that, uh, that Model 98 Mauser, and then I've got a, a Remington 700 270. 
So which one is the one that I shot? You shot both of them. So the one that I took to Georgia with us was the was the Remington, and that other one that we shot at the range that day. Remember that shot the one thirty. That one is the Mauser. That's the one I'll be carrying. Okay. Okay. I completed my math here. Um, so if, if you're shooting downhill at 40 degrees um, and it's it's 200 yards uh, line of sight to your animal, uh, that that actual uh, distance placed on that bullet uh, over land uh, where gravity can apply on it is uh, 128 yards. So. With that being said, I, my, my gun shoots uh, two inches high at 100 yards, and so that's going to put me somewhere around uh, an inch and a half high on that shot, and and that is a very lethal shot at 200 yards. So, inch and a half high with uh, two and a half inches of, for ac- rifle accuracy. Yes. Yes, so uh, max max deviation is what, 3.25? I think so. Okay. <laughs> well, it's something like that. Well, anyway. Uh, I don't know I, mean, what I don't know what you're... You're talking about your velocity deviation? No, 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 no. Uh, max deviation with the accuracy of the rifle. Oh, you're talking about if you shoot a minute and a quarter? Let's see. Yeah, a minute and a quarter, it's going to shoot me. So a minute and a quarter means that I can have uh, 2.25 inches plus, uh, so it'd be 3.75 inches max. Uh, so if, if I make a bad shot with my gun that shoots a minute and a quarter and I, I've shot point of aim uh, on, on where I want it to impact, the most that I could be is, is 3.75 inches high. And, and uh, on an animal of this size, uh, I'm going to be destroying the lungs with a shot like that. I was going to say, that's still well within a lung shot. You, you're going to miss a heart, but that's still well within the lungs. That's not absolutely. That's not a big deal. All you'd have to really consider would be if you had uh, partial, uh, you know, like a partial lung shot or something like that where... So you would have to just think about that. It's not really, a, it's not really a shot calculation problem as much as it is a you need to stock more problem. Um, but that is something that you would have to consider yeah, as far as you know. What, if you're at three seven five and you only get the top half or or the top quarter of a of a vital shot or something like that, you may have to move and find a little bit more because you're not gonna. You can only reliably shoot uh, roughly four inches at, at that sort of a of an angle or something like that so yeah that, that's point of aim you know so I mean we're only talking an inch and a half of uh, of difference here you'd only be an inch and a half high so I mean yeah it's pretty easy to account for you know just good old Kentucky stuff so let's get into the, the nitty gritty of this what are you guys bringing with you uh, what's something you think you absolutely can't leave behind? Obviously, your rifle and your ammunition. your ammunition <laughs> and glass. But what's that little piece of gear that can't be left behind? Well, you took mine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the glass, man. <laughs> the glass is the most important. 
are you talking about glass attached to the rifle? Because for me, like, if, if I don't have my binos, I might as well go home. Yeah, when I say glass, I'm more referring to uh, stuff that's not attached to the rifle. Binos, spot and scope, things like that. Okay, alright. So what's that little piece of gear that, that you always bring with you outside of that? The stuff you would obviously assume you need to have to make that a successful hunt. Even if it's just a creature comfort. Training with our uh, our trekking poles, and I don't think I'll make this trip without them. I know I might that might sound uh, vaginal, but uh, <laughs> my, my knees and everything are so torn up, are so torn up from uh, walking with so much weight on my back for so many miles um, that I can't hardly expect to make a hike like what we're gonna do in and set up and then be able to walk the next day uh, without something like that to help take some of that uh, pressure and you know just strain off of my off of my knees and stuff getting in there and so uh, that's that's one thing I've been training and it makes a huge difference how just having those with you you know I've honestly tossed around the idea of getting some trekking poles to use when I'm walking around in waders uh, in about waist deep water because I feel like there's just there, there were plenty of opportunities last year. There's a story where, there. Yeah, where that would have saved I me. There. I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> where that would have. <laughs> I thought it was funny, but <laughs> where that would have saved me from being soaking wet for the rest of the day. <laughs> oh man, that is, that, I, that's a great idea, man. I, I took a I took a waiter dip. Uh, chasing a duck down the river uh, last season, and, and my whole shotgun went under and everything, man. It was uh, just just one little thing to just catch yourself a little bit would make all the difference. Let me tell you. Here's not so much that. Here it's more like, okay, there's a hole there. I can't step there. <laughs> Let me tell you. There was, a, there was a trench that would easily fit just over a size 12 and a half boot uh, that went all the way to China. And I walked over it. I walked over top of this trench probably three times before I hit it square. And I went in, and that was it. I was on my – my right foot was well past touching bottom, and my I was on my knee on my left leg, and I could not get back up, and I straight filled my waders up. <laughs> They're super easy to dry out, too. All you got to do is dump them out. <laughs> yeah, but the clothes on the inside of those, not so much. <laughs> I don't, it didn't I don't help. know where all that water comes from. I mean, you hang those things upside down for two days, then you climb back into them, and your boots fill up with water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, what do you got for a, a little piece of gear like the trekking poles? Well, I, I think if, if I had to pick one thing that's going to really help me be successful, uh, the Windicator. Uh, and, and you know, while you're hunting and walking around, uh, you know, a couple steps in, hit that Windicator. Okay, you, you got an idea where the wind's going. Two more steps, hit that Windicator again. And, and that gives you a very good idea on where you should be walking and, and which way you should be heading to, to increase your odds because, uh, you know, if, if you have a wind that, that sometimes shoots, uh, let's say you, you get it for, for five minutes out of the east and then you get it for 30 seconds out of the west, well, 
you got basically two ways to go and that's north and south or you're not going to see it, uh, anything so it, you know you can't just check that wind one time and say okay i got it coming out of the east um i got three directions i can go uh reasonably and 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 be able to find animals so uh checking that wind knowing what the wind's doing is so important i think uh having a wind indicator on you and, and and handy is is very important how does how does that those timber patches affect the wind and and when you're when and where you're checking that that wind at too? Well, um, it, it, I wouldn't say the timber patches affect it that much, but the uh, the terrain that we're going to be in is is uh, a lot of of uh, straight up peaks and then small small valley type bowls that have the timber patches in it and so what what you end up seeing is is a changing wind throughout the day uh due to thermals and so uh, as it heats up or as it's cool in the morning and and there, there's a couple times periods there during the day where it, it it hasn't warmed up enough and uh, or it hasn't gotten cold enough for that wind to really do what it's going to do uh for that period of the day and, and so you get a lot of shifty wind going on um and and you know during during those times it's really important to make sure you have a heading that that uh is not going to dis is not going to be disrupted by that that slight change in wind yeah so i, I uh i got a piece of contractor string and i pulled one of the strands out of it tied that baby around the barrel um and that's kind of a that's something you can glance at before you shoot it's something you can glance at the entire time you're walking around and it just gives you kind of a very general but um, instant feedback on what what the wind and stuff's doing um, and so you know if you if you don't have a wind indicator or it's not something that you're uh, it's in your budget to purchase that's a it's a good option it's passable uh, probably not as good as a wind indicator but um, it, it does, it, you know, it works. Okay, well, uh, what, what kind of packs are you guys using? Well, I got, go ahead, uh, I got a, so I was going to carry an Alice for prep. So uh, when I was uh, carrying a backpack all the time, that was that was my favorite one. And uh, that was one of the first purchases I made when I uh, was getting ready to, to uh, you know, return to civilian life. Um, and so I had that baby. I, I had it all packed up, ready to go. And uh, I've been—I was working out with that. I went down to visit a buddy, and I got down there, and, and he asked me, uh, you know, what I was carrying. I told him I had that, and he—he he had an extra bag, so he gave me that. I, I, so I've got a out, outdoors um, commander pack. That's an external frame pack, and it has a, a meat freighter kind of built into it. So. Uh, and I think they, I think they retail for about uh, 150, 160 bucks on Amazon. You can get them. Um, I've so far I've carried 40 pounds for uh, four miles. Did it in about an hour, eh, about an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, I was, I was good when I was done. It, it's pretty good at supporting the weight and all that. And so we'll see though. I, I know uh, the way the bag is shaped, it kind of pushes my head forward. So that feels really weird, but. I think kind of what we're looking at, that kind of, uh, you know, maybe three three hours of walking or something like that in, uh, I, it shouldn't be too big of a deal. I could imagine if I was through 
through hiking or something like that, it would uh, it would get very annoying to have to walk in that posture. How about you, Scott? Yeah, so uh, for me, uh, I'm I'm probably not the authority on uh, how to do this inexpensively. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really enjoy doing this. I've been doing it for quite a few years, and and over the years, I've I've gone through uh, a sick pack uh, and found out it was too small and uh just poorly designed in general um i got a real good secondhand deal on a kafaru on a kuyu pack and uh found out that um it was poorly designed for any kind of weight over about 35 pounds and uh would would create a lot of lower back pain on me and everything so um, I really didn't enjoy that pack either. I, I did use that for a few years, and and it is it is fine, um, but it's but it's not great. And and recently, I uh, went for the major upgrade, and I got a Kafaro pack. Um, I have the Kafaro Fulcrum. It's a it's a pack that uh, gets really large uh, for for extended. Uh, backcountry hunts um, it has a built-in meat shelf I, I paired it with the tack frame uh, and the reason I paired it with the tack frame is because uh, is for that that preseason training uh, they, they, it's a little bit heavier frame that you can strap uh, very strange shaped objects to to give you the weight that you want to train with uh, without any really real uh, deformation or anything um, but then the pack itself is has has a large main body on it. It has uh, two side pouches that that uh, have zippers up them. Uh, one cool thing about it is is I, I believe the pack to be seventy eight hundred cubic inches, something like that. Um, but when when you get into your camp, if you're gonna if you're gonna spike camp and hunt out of it, you can unload this bag, set up your tent, set up you know get your sleeping bag in it, all all those large items out of your pack. Those two side pockets will roll around to the back of the bag, and uh, you have an eighteen hundred inch day pack, uh, which which is very nice uh, to to carry around. It's it's. Uh, just kind of condenses everything down for you uh, while you're in the backcountry, but but these these packs come with with a pretty hefty price tag to them. So uh, I, on the other hand, I can say these bags are worth every penny. I mean, th- this company has there, there's not a single thing on this that's not made in the United States. As a matter of fact, they they push companies to build them things just so that it, it's manufactured in the United States and they don't have to go out of the U.S. Um, and and one of these packs is, is built for a lifetime. So if you make this kind of investment, you will not ever have to buy another bag. And that's the kind of type of stuff we've talk, I've talked about with Tyke at length before, is that, especially when we talked about guns, is it's not so much as, when we talk about a budget, it's not about getting it cheap. It's about budgeting the money prior to spending it so that you can buy the better equipment. 
you maybe you okay. pack your lunch instead of buying buying lunch at McDonald's every day, and over the course of a year you save that money to buy that expensive pack that's going to last you a lifetime. So you only have to buy it once. Uh, it, it's yeah, not. Well, I mean, where I am on that is. I wish I hadn't bought a Sitka pack. I wish I hadn't bought a Kuyu pack. I wish I would have bought the Kafara Reddit out the gate, and and then I would have only had one pack and felt like I had no need to go get another one. Well, see, that's that's our other point. Is sometimes yeah, you, you start talking about you know uh, cost cost per uh, mile or something like that, and you you use the same bag over your entire life, and you end up coming out cheaper than if you have to buy a new bag every year, every two years. Uh, um, you know, for uh, like what I have, I mean, mine was free, so you know, take that for what it is. But uh, you know, even a retail at 150, if you got to buy one every two years, it doesn't take too many years before you can go ahead and afford a much more expensive uh, piece of kit. That's one thing we talked about a lot is instead of buying the cheap one first and then getting the expensive one you just go ahead and, and save up and buy the expensive one and then you only hurt once instead of having to buy you buy three or four packs and then you get that expensive one you just went ahead and bought the expensive one one time instead of buying three or four and then oh crap now i gotta get another pack and you get the expensive one and you don't need another one absolutely man <laughs> buy, buy once cry once there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah that bag will make you cry too but you know what? Like I said, if you're if you're going out to if you're going to work every day and you're you're going out to lunch, in the course of a year, you're probably spending enough money at lunch that you could save that money by packing your lunch and afford to buy that pack. And everything goes on sale at one point or another. And there's always a great used market for stuff like that. Or you can do Man, if you were going to lunch every day for a year in California, you could buy three of these <laughs> <laughs> by packing your lunch. You, said, you just do like men, just quit eating lunch. <laughs> that would be like, uh, like almost $4,000. if. <laughs> uh, no doubt. Yeah, it's every bit of that. I mean, there, there, there isn't any... I mean... Like what? What's the cheap place to go to lunch? McDonald's. I guess that cost me about thirteen bucks for a, a normal sandwich meal. Well, I'd say Taco Bell, and that's probably about ten. I think that's about the cheapest I need at you know going out somewhere. Yeah, so that's fifty bucks a week. These packs don't cost that much. Yeah, you you take <laughs> you, you can cut that down by five dollars a day, right? By packing your own lunch. You multiply five by three hundred and sixty-five. You got enough money to buy that pack. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. what are you guys using for shelter? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, let me let me cover this take on this one. So, uh, here's a good money-saving tip uh, where you can actually cut corners save a whole bunch of money and still have the nice stuff is you you get your mother to give you a sewing machine <laughs> and teach you how to use it and uh and so what i did was i i liked the idea of these tarp uh open floor uh open end tarp shelters because uh 
a tent doesn't doesn't keep you any warmer. Uh, whether it's closed up or not, you're dealing with like about one millimeter or seven millimeters of fabric that uh, it's not going to hold your body heat in. So, so why carry all this weight? So, what I did was I got onto a uh, onto a website and not not necessarily to plug them, but just in case your listeners want to know where to get these kinds of fabrics, uh, ripstopbytheroll.com. They have all these high performance outdoor fabrics, and uh, they they sell them for a very reasonable price compared to what you would spend on a good that was made out of these fabrics. And so I I built this this backcountry shelter that uses uh, aluminum tent stakes. Um, it's a two man shelter. Will fit all their gear, um, and then for the for the poles to, to hold it up, I I built the shelter and I figured out what the pole length was uh, using trekking poles and extending them. Then I measured them and I put some markers on the edge of the tent that show how long these poles got to be uh, to get the right kind of pitch out of the shelter. And, uh, and then after the fact, now once I, have, once I put that marker on there, uh, going to the backcountry, cut you a stick to to the length that you need, pitch it right out of the sticks that are already in there for you, and uh, and have have an awesome shelter that'll hold all your gear. Well, you got bows, rifles, whatever it is that go in there, plus two guys on top of that, and uh, and it 100% waterproof and everything. It's a, it's a great shelter for for anything three season. Uh, that, that you're going to be getting into and you're carrying 19 ounces for the whole thing well, you can't beat that yeah and you know if, if, if you really wanted to be a weight weenie and you're going in with two guys i mean you could split the fabric and split the split the stakes and, and you're talking about one guy carrying about 12 and 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 one guy carrying seven and and have your shelter in in <laughs> And basically nothing. I mean, you can't even cook for those kinds of weights. So, and that uh, goes back to what that, we we talked about again as well is that what you pay for, what you don't pay for in cash, you pay for in sweat. You you didn't go out and buy this tent and spend as much money as you could, but you put in your own work man hours to build it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty neat shelter. Um, it's it's uh, it works out really good in the backcountry, and and I I think that I put the whole thing together uh, for around 130 bucks. That's a lot cheaper. You can buy any of the, most backcountry tents, of, especially of that weight. That's about half the price, at least. Uh, and, and when you start looking at uh, a shelter built out of comparable materials and stuff, that, that's where that's where this one really has a big advantage is that I was able to use, like, very durable fabrics um, with, with very high-quality stitching and all of that stuff that uh, once you get into that market, uh, you're talking about five times less. So the same shelter. What are you guys? What are you guys doing for food and water? Because I know, I, having done some backpack camping trips myself, 
Water is a very, very, very cumbersome thing to carry. <laughs> yeah, about eight pounds a gallon, I think. The <laughs> only three, three pounds four, a gallon, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the only thing worse than carrying water is is literally carrying dead weight. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I. I'm, I'm going to be bringing a combination of a couple things, uh, and and I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to use on this trip, but um, I, I project, I, I have the uh, Catadin the Hiker Pro water filter. Um, I do know that in years past I've had uh, water in, in relative proximity to, to where we intend to, to camp, uh, and so, I've, you know, my, my last trip there, we, we had about a 200 or a, a two hour round trip, uh, to our water source and we had storage for, for six liters each. And so, and, and we were dropping about 800 ele- feet in elevation to get that water. And so that, that was, uh, three liters a piece per day uh was a little tight on water and so it, it can be very rough but w- where we're going on this trip i think that that catadin filter and uh bringing some extra water storage because i don't think we're going to be having to go so far for it uh, pumping pumping our water and uh that, that should uh make water the water situation here pretty uh easy on this particular trip so, I think I think the plan is we'll pack in what we need for the hike as far as water. So maybe uh, you know like a uh, three liter, two liter, whatever you need for that kind of a hike is what you're carrying in. Um, but then having a few extra empty water vessels that you can fill up once you get there for you know things like breakfast. Nobody wants to get up and and have to go to the to to go to the creek to get water for their coffee or something. It's nice just to have it kind of already ready to go and, and stuff like that before you start the day. Um, and so, yes, I'll be carrying in what I need for the hike and then some extra storage so that we can have some on hand, uh, just to save, save, uh, trips and stuff to get water all the time. So you talk about coffee. What do you guys do for coffee? I mean, coffee is the lifeblood. I'm drinking two, three, four (laughs) cups a morning. And I, you know, I've been looking into some awesome things and I don't know if you guys know, but Black Rifle Coffee Company makes like a coffee tea bag that you can just steep in water. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds pretty awesome. I, I know, uh, I know I'd like to support a company like that. Um, but, uh, so far, uh, what I've been using in the backcountry are the Starbucks Vias. Um, they're little tiny single shot packets. Uh, usually I kind of, uh, do like one and a half uh, of the water and I put in two of those packets and uh, that, that makes a pretty decent cup of coffee. I, I haven't really found anything that's that's comparable to the Vias in the backcountry as far as uh, as far as flavor and, and feeling like you actually had a real cup of coffee. So, uh, um, But I- certainly something else I'd be interested in checking out if... Uh, and, and giving them a shot to see see if they're as good because uh, Starbucks isn't necessarily a company that I want to be giving my money to if I have an alternative. So I'm going to stop you right there and tell you that 
Black Rifle Coffee Company also makes the same type of coffee as that Starbucks Via. And from what I understand, it is way better. The same, well, the same yeah, platform, everything. The, the, the owner of Black Rifle those, Coffee uh, designed that instant coffee for that for his backcountry trips. That's what. That's why he came up with the instant coffee for Black Rifle is because he was tired of taking Starbucks instant coffee. That's so he can have a good coffee in the backcountry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's certainly a company I'd rather support. I'll have to look into that. So, what are you guys doing for food? Go ahead, Tag. I'm going to be a while on this one. <laughs> ideally, ideally, you should be able to kill something to eat, right? I mean, it's a hunting trip. But. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the idea. I'm gonna try and uh, eat some treats, some uh, tree squirrels or something. But no, I, I'm uh, I'm planning on uh, you probably just some instant oatmeal packs, and then I'll get a few of the mountain house meals and stuff like that as for for protein uh, to carry in there. Uh, I, having started so late on just deciding that. As, you know, about five weeks out that I'm going to go do a backcountry hunt. Uh, I'm really, I'm really behind the curve. So uh, I'm, I'm going to have to, you know, kind of hit the commercial market and pack light and and do what I can to be able to get in there and and have the experience. Uh, the other thing I kind of wrestle with is, is, you know, is this something I'm really going to enjoy and do I want to uh, spend? two thousand dollars so i can really enjoy it i want to find out if i want to actually spend the extra money to go in and have this stuff and so yeah i'm, I'm looking at probably uh, some mountain house will probably take in four or five mountain house meals and then some uh you know different power foods uh granola things like that and then uh, some some oatmeal and stuff like that for breakfast um and, and we're doing such a short trip that, I mean, honestly, you could probably survive by and not eat anything on a on a three day hunt like this. You could still live. You're not going to die. You just won't have a good time. So uh, that's that's kind of what I'm looking at for uh, for food is going to be some of the commercially available products uh, that I can that are light and I can pack in pretty easily and are going to keep. So you mean to tell me the good old fashioned MRE is not on the the two bring list? <laughs> not, not yet. I, you're probably gonna need to give me another twenty years or so before I'm gonna, gonna want to go take an MRE anywhere by my choice. <laughs> Believe me, I can understand. I can understand. But I'll tell you this: before I got out of the army, the MREs got exponentially better. We got pizza. That's true. Well, I'll tell you this: I don't want heartburn for the entire weekend. <laughs> but we had there's a pizza MRE now and it's like a, a, a lunchable pizza but worse. Before yeah, well that sounds, that sounds more heart, that sounds more heartburny than that uh, uh, chicken fajita. Oh, I know that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember that one. Did, did did you ever have the the pork breakfast sausage? That was a pretty decent one. That'd give you heartburn too, though. <laughs> <laughs> the only the only good one was uh, chicken chicken with noodles, but they you know had to had to had to have Tabasco and cheese sauce, which you usually had to trade 
uh, your Skittles to somebody else to get their Tabasco and cheese sauce. And then when you mix all that stuff together, uh, you had a pretty good meal in front of you. You know, I, I don't know if, if you're aware of this, but the Buffalo Chicken MRE, it was good. And now they've gone and they've taken the buffalo out of the chicken and put it in a separate pack. Now it's just a, like this congealed chicken breast. You never had the chicken breast in That you had to add. You had the regular chicken breast in I've had it. But you have to add the buffalo sauce to it. It's not nearly as good anymore. Oh, it's not the soup anymore? No, it, it used to be you had that congealed but shredded, but shredded chicken in the buffalo sauce. Now yeah. you have this um, compressed packet of congealed chicken that you have to add buffalo sauce to in order to make it buffalo chicken. It's no longer a buffalo chicken MRE. It's a chicken MRE with buffalo sauce. Oh, yeah. But what was that one... Uh stroganoff or something remember that one that was just like, <laughs> the only one left at the end of the day all the time nothing made I, me more I, I mad this applies to the mountain house as well i, I mean I, I couldn't get my dog to eat that beef stroganoff <laughs> <laughs> stroganoff is a bad choice for field food i think <laughs> give, give it up why why stroganoff nothing <laughs> makes me more mad about an mre than a low-fat pop-tart <laughs> or, or or the omelet the omelet was always uh that was disgusting we use no, that got, as a chalk block yeah they did because it was terrible. Nobody ate it. Yeah. It was a waste oh, of money. Biscuits and gravy was bomb, though. Yes, it was. I, this, this, that was, like, the greatest MRE ever. But now you have hash browns. There's a hash browns MRE that comes uh, with bacon and the butter buds. Bacon bits and the butter buds, and it is a uh, killer. <laughs> as far as shitty food goes, it's really good. <laughs> When you're hungry and in the field, it's not that bad. <laughs> well, that's saying something. <laughs> so, what kind of terrain do you guys uh, plan to be spending most of your time in? Uh, hang on, we got to go back to my food. I didn't okay. get to talk about food yet. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, Scott missed the food. So, because uh, it, it's, it worth, it's worth noting that... that uh, a failure can do most of this uh, this uh, backcountry food stuff himself if he convinces his wife, uh, like I have mine. <laughs> uh, you know, my wife. Uh, I, I'm very lucky. She 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 puts together these meals uh, and then and then takes out a single serving, throws them on the dehydrator, and uh, dehydrates them down. Uh, this after she weighs them uh, in fluid ounces of water and then uh, dehydrates them out, weighs them again, and then uh, lets me know how much water they've lost so that I can uh, so that I can add that, that amount of water back into them in the field and, and cook them. And so uh, on a lot of my trips, I, 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 I get... Uh, mostly home cooking, you know, it's it's never quite as good as it was at home, but it's it's surprisingly good for being in the backcountry. Um, no, those would be dinners, uh, and then uh, one thing that I've noticed about uh, 
backcountry food is that uh, in general, most people are not interested in eating uh, basically anything, especially if you're putting stuff together that that looks like you should be eating it in the backcountry, like a like a protein bar or uh, anything like that. So I'm, I'm a big proponent for 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 getting calories in you and something that you're going to want to eat and and whether that's oreo cookies or uh uh super sweet uh oatmeal bars or something along those lines uh whatever it is make sure it's going to be something that you would want to eat after dinner (laughs) (laughs) because uh that's what it's going to take to make sure that you can uh that, that you're gonna want to eat it while you're in the backcountry. Yeah, yeah so, so it's like it's like saving the apple fritter uh, for the end of your MRE. <laughs> I don't know that I ever got an apple fritter, and I, don't I, think I, I did either. I'm highly disappointed about that. If, what? If, yeah, if you came across an apple fritter and I didn't, I, I'm pretty upset because I, I spent about double the time <laughs> in the army that you did, no, and I, I, I never came across one of those. Time. Those things were amazing. That's probably what gave me the heartburn, but I'm, I'm disappointed. It's the only reason I could choke down the rest of the damn thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed. Hey, here, here's a tip for, for breakfast: is that if you get some some farm fresh eggs, you can poke a zip, you can put them in a ziploc and poke that ziploc into a Nalgene bottle, screw the top on, and they float inside that ziploc while you carry them in, and then. Man, when you're back there, you can cook yourself some eggs over easy, and and man, there is just nothing better for for your uh, mindset um, and and uh, energy level. Wanting to eat breakfast and having some nice farm fresh eggs and maybe some just add water pancake mix. You know, have, it, have we thought about taking in pack goats and then uh, <laughs> eating them? <laughs> You know, That's Steve, Steve Ranella's brother uses llamas. Now you're talking. All right. No, <laughs> so, so back to the question earlier, what kind of train do you guys plan on spending most of your time in? Go ahead, Scott. This is, uh, I haven't been there. Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to be right in Timberline, so it's going to be a combination between uh, steep, uh, wooded timber, uh, and then as as you work up to the upper ends of those uh, and get out of Timberline, you're going to be in in Rock Scree, uh, which is is what what you call um, a mountain that, that comes up mostly made out of rock at the top and then as weather ages that rock it 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 kind of uh chinks off in in little pieces of of uh uh, of itself and it makes these slides that uh are are kind of uh the worst thing that could ever happen to a mountain hunter and so uh because every step you take up you lose like half of that sliding back down this rock regardless of you know of how much effort you're putting in you just kind of slide back down so it's going to be a combination of that rocky stuff 
which is is back to boots is is absolutely terrible on boots and then uh getting down into uh areas of timber uh that that are are fairly easy walking even though they are uh, pretty steep and and uh somewhat rugged so screes like really big sand screes is like sand that is made out of pieces of rock that are anywhere from uh from small marble size up to like uh, five inch by three inch by half inch pieces of rock, and and it's got it's just a mixture of, of all these different sizes. And so when you step in it, it, it kind of rolls down. It doesn't ever do like the, the landslide type thing because uh, the the angle of repose on it is it is pretty steep, but. Um, but it is an energy sucker. So, <clears throat> what what process are you guys using to plan your roots? I mean, we like to use Onyx down here a lot. Uh, it's going to give us that public land. We don't have near as much public land as a lot of guys do out west. But Florida is number one in the southeast. So... We're using Onyx to find that that, that public land. That's because of water. Yeah. <laughs> what are you guys using? Yeah, I think I've been I've been uh, spending a lot of time on Onyx, uh, Google Earth. I uh, I went on mytopo.com, uh, ordered a map of the area. Um, I'll be, you know, the the maps are kind of nice because uh, you know I think we talked about it the other day, but you can see you can see uh, potential water sources on a map that you may not see in some other sort of imagery and stuff like that. Um, and that's kind of my, you know, last ditch. I make it to the highway and don't die plan is to, uh, is to be able to use a, a map and a compass and a protractor and, and, uh, make, make way from, from wherever I am, uh, to somewhere where, you know, I won't die. Uh, and so that's kind of what I've been looking at and trying to trying to plan. It's really hard having never been there to to, uh, to look at it and see you know where you want to hunt because it's even even looking at imagery, Google Earth and uh, topo map, it doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, it probably does, but maybe I'm just too stupid to figure it out. Uh, and so I just gotta one of those things is I make a plan and I'll get there and then it, it'll probably go to shit and then. Uh, you know, figure it out at that point. I'm the, I'm the yeah. same way as far as finding a spot for me to duck hunt. Is I'll pull up a spot, I'll look at, at it on Onyx on the lake and try to find that vegetation. But you don't know what's there. Is that an island? Is it vegetation? I mean, is it lilies? What is it? So you almost have to go there and look at it to really see what you're looking for. Yeah, best laid plans, right? You can make a plan, but... <laughs> Uh, just expect that plan's going to go to shit the minute you you step foot on the, on the actual ground there. Uh, that plan's going to just go away, and you're going to probably have to reassess. But uh, when you're standing there and you got a map and you've got you know your, uh, we're not going to be able to be online, and so we have to have we'll have to be on offline Onyx, and so we'll kind of between the map and the imagery on Onyx and things like that. Uh, once you get there and you kind of see how it actually looks and all that, then, you know, you may remake the plan and then, uh, you know, hopefully your brother's been there before and you can ask him where the hell you should go. 
<laughs> you know, uh, Onyx is is straight up godsend. I mean, that's like the best thirty bucks a year that I've spent on my hunting in my whole life. Um, and and there are some real advantages and some some real scouting that can be done on there ahead of time. You know, these these, these animals. Uh, like we all know, are very skittish. They're they're looking for places to hide out, and with that topo overlay on there, uh, being able to look at the terrain and and see where these small areas of protected timber, where where you're having these drop offs um, on both sides, but they can get get it elevated just enough to where they can keep track of what's coming up below them. And, uh, and then have easy access to things like feed and water. Uh, a lot of that can be determined on those maps. Um, you may not know 100%, oh, this is feed, and oh, there's going to be water here. But what you can do is look on there and say, here's my first spot, here's my second spot, here's my third, and here's my fourth. And, and know exactly where to go to get to them. Go in there, check them out. Oh, this one doesn't have any deer because what I thought was feed was was some kind of worthless brush that, that these deer aren't going to use, or or um, it's completely inaccessible because there's so much brush I can't even get in there. So there's probably deer in there, but I'm not going to be able to hunt them. You move right on to spot number two that looks like it can hold animals, um, and the, the the biggest benefit out of all of this and having these spots is that you can have a pretty good idea of, of where your approach directions are to those spots so that you're not blowing animals out when you go in there to find out if there's animals there. You, you can say, hey, if I, if I come around, it, you know, it's an extra two miles of walking, but if I come around from this angle, that's going to put me above these animals, go in there when the wind's right, and th- th- these guys are going to be in there dead to right. And so uh, ha- having all of that information available at your fingertips, plus uh, offline GPS to show you right where you are, and, and when you get there and everything looks a little bit different than you expected, you can still have a really good idea of where you need to go and how you need to approach. So <clears throat> for a little tip that I, I, I pushed this several times before, uh, as soon as I found out about it, on our podcast is that there there's an app for or not an app but a website for internet scouting before you go called sentinel hub they update their satellite imagery every three to seven days so you can go on there and you you can find real-time satellite imagery the only issue or the biggest issue you're going to come at with using that website is cloud cover so you may have to use older imagery because of cloud cover because it is it, it's it's real time three to seven day imagery. But what you can do with that when you have that clear image is you can switch to like a red scale, which is going to show you when you look at the red, it's going to show you all the green. the The forest is going to show up red, and your water is going to show up black. So any little creeks that might be seasonal, it's going to show you real time if they have water in them or not. So being able to use that is is an awesome tool, and it is 110% free, 99. Wow, that's awesome! I, I haven't actually, I've never heard of that. that that's something I'm definitely going to check out. What's it called? Sentinel Hub. Sentinel. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm actually looking at a spot right now. I forgot about it. And I was looking at the day on Onyx. <laughs> <laughs> on on well, Sentinel I'm looking, Hub. I'm looking up Sentinel Hub right now. And they're saying it's like 25 euros a month. No. No. You, you can go in there and use it for free. I use it for free all the time on my phone. You got... Uh, well, I'm using it for free right now. How many Canadian rubles is that? <laughs> you well, can... let, me, let me figure it out. Well, 25 euros is... Uh, uh, just so you have an idea what it's going to cost, is 25 euros. <laughs> but okay. it is so, free, and you can explore the hub. It's a little difficult to navigate with because it starts somewhere in Europe, and you have to kind of scroll your way across it on your phone. Uh, but if you if you mess with it on a desktop, it's a little bit easier, and you, you can kind of pinpoint the area you, you want to look at. You, yeah, okay, I, I see it. Um, I see now the free option. Um, it just doesn't have, like, the weather and all that other, right. all that other crap that goes with it. But when you're we're trying to look at that, that real-time imagery of the area you're going into, that's the place to be. Yeah, this, this looks pretty good. All right, I'm I'm in, I'm in there now. It is it's zero euros. <laughs> How many rubles is that? <laughs> uh, zero. Zero. All right, I can do that conversion. <laughs> so, what you guys yeah, is plan? What you guys is plan for communication? Well, I think. Uh, Okay, so 20 euros is uh, 1,782 uh, rubles. <laughs> okay. Thank Save you. your money. You're, you're welcome. So, yeah, that that thing, if you want a commercial account, is going to cost you uh, 1,782 rubles. Which is probably All pretty right. cheap American. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, comms, I, I think we kind of talked a little bit about we're going to take... Uh, so, he and I both, Scott and I both are... Uh, ham radio operators and so we talked a little bit about maybe taking the we got some handhelds we're gonna we're gonna carry in and just see how they work they may they may not work for shit in there in the mountainous terrain stuff like that but uh, we'll give it a shot for you know whatever they're gonna weigh um and and beyond that i got uh, yelling really loud i guess <laughs> you know uh this, this to me is is something that i think is uh is probably more important than I give it credence for, but I gotta be honest, I, if uh, somebody was looking to come out here and uh, they've, they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, put that trip together, uh, communication with, with your hunting partner or, or things to that nature or is, is probably a, a very unnecessary step, you know. This I, I spent seven days in, in the backcountry here a couple of weeks ago, and our, our communication was uh, where we're going to meet after the next course of action uh, before we split up. So it, you know, it was uh, when you're in the backcountry. A lot of times you're carrying everything that you need to survive for a day or two. And so, um, you know, it, it's kind of cool to, to be able to say, oh, hey, I, I, I shot a buck over here and, and uh, would like some help carrying it. But even that kind of stuff is not like a super fast timeline uh, is necessary. So you really can get away with just saying, hey, 
I'm going to be in, in, having a, a general uh, east bearing out of camp this morning, and uh, you know expect me back at lunch. And if I don't show up, expect me back for dinner. Um, and and if they don't come back till the next day or whatever, even that's not overly concerning. I, I just don't put a whole lot of of uh, need with, with somebody who has some you know a, a general level of, of how to survive in the outdoors and who spent some time there uh, throughout their life. This communication thing to me is is an issue that doesn't necessarily need resolving. So um, we're going to try these radios out. Uh, mostly for fun, but I, I don't view it as, as something that is a safety concern or anything like that. So what are you guys leaving with family back home? I mean, I know in the past, uh, when I was hunting a lot of public ground, when Tyke and I were both stationed at Fort Campbell, um, I would leave a map at home and uh, with my wife and say, this is where I'm going to be if, I'm, if you haven't heard from me by this time, then uh, send the rescue team. I think that's very important, and, and I do the same thing. I, I'll uh, specify the, the particular valley I'm going into and kind of kind of give a general overview of the area I'm going to, and then if I don't show up uh, within a day or two, then it, it's, it's either time for whoever I'm hunting with to hike out and, and uh, call, call for help. Um, as an outdoorsman, I'm going to make where I am as obvious as I possibly can uh, with the resources that I have on me. For instance, I'm, I'm going to uh, start turning camo items inside out, getting the white out uh, instead of the, that, that camo out. I'm going to be, uh, you know, if I have a, a colorful tent or a tarp or something in my backpack, I'm going to be laying that out so that so that uh, air rescue can see me in those places, making myself as visible as I can. Um, and, and having somebody who's going to come looking eventually is important. Yeah. My, my plan is, uh, I'm generally going to do the same thing. So I'll leave, you know, just kind of, uh, uh, where we're going to be generally. Um, you know, if you can narrow down for search and rescue to, uh, you know, 15 mile radius um it, it makes things go a lot faster because they're not trying to search uh you know hundreds of square miles of wilderness looking for you if they kind of know where you started and they figure okay it's been three days you can you can only travel so far in three days and you narrow that thing down to you know 15 square miles or 20 square miles in a chopper man they can cover that ground like you wouldn't believe in a day you know and if you if you are smart and you're in a position where um they can find you on the ground you, you're not you're not too you're not too bad off at that point um yeah i mean we are we're gonna go play with the radios and see what they can do uh, but that i don't think is going to be the primary uh form of communication just because it's it's going to be unreliable i think um, in that kind of terrain, we, we got real steep, steep hills and stuff like that. Um, and, and you got a five watt radio. It's the odds of it making it from one valley to the next are, are not very high. Yeah. And, 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 uh, I don't think anybody wants to, to have the buck of their dreams run out of their life when they're like at 75 yards because you get like, Hey Scott, 
where are you at? Come over the, the handheld walkie-talkie <laughs> <laughs> at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I get that. And so, you know, a lot of that kind of, it doesn't make, it makes sense uh, if you got some people in there that, you know, we're not uh, going to use it frivolously and stuff like that. You know, I, I just thought it'd be uh, kind of an interesting experiment to see what we could deal with there. And they do make, you know, those silent options and stuff like that. If they if we get up there and those things work like a dream, then, then why not be able to communicate? Uh, but you need to figure out some way to keep all those communications quiet where you have a earpiece or something in. Um, that's not going to have you know, a lot of noise and stuff come over at the wrong time. Yeah, I, I think uh, if people are looking to, to use a, a radio communication device on a hunt like this, uh, setting in like a uh, a built-in time to turn your radio on if you're in a situation to do that, maybe maybe three times throughout the day. Uh, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., uh, you, you turn your radio on if you're in a position to do that. you got 15 minutes to make the calls you want to make. Um, if the other person doesn't respond, you try it the next check-in time, and, and eventually you'll get back into communication with each other and, and, and get the message across. But you, you just got to be prepared that in, in, in a situation like this, uh, direct communication is, is not really a good option. No, so, and I, I know, like, you and I have talked about, um, we have in place kind of a typed-up plan in case we can't, you know, use the cell phone or Internet or anything like that. We kind of have a plan in place for the radio where we're going to have it turned on to certain frequencies and and stuff like that. And, and otherwise, I mean, you, you start looking at the frequency bands and stuff like that and how large they are, um, you'll never find who you want to talk to unless you put that stuff in place before and so it's kind of generally the same thing as as what we're looking at and we already have kind of in place is a backed up plan and you know uh, shit hit the fan scenario um and it would just kind of be the same thing you know hey we'll turn i'll turn it on for 10 minutes from 9 to nine ten, and i'm going to turn it off um, and that's only if i'm not staring at the book of a lifetime mm-hmm you know, and there's nothing to get worried about until somebody's been gone for a few days, and you haven't seen them. And you go, "Well, hey, maybe, maybe I should uh, start hiking out of here and see if I can't get get somebody to come in and help me look for them." And you know that we we talk about the the communication, and it, it's important to have that uh radio plan per se you have your check-in times throughout the day and then obviously you should be checking in if you're in radio signal you know the the after legal shooting light you know that that should be one of your times because at that point you shouldn't be hunting right it because that's your your legal mm-hmm. shooting 30 minutes after sunset so if you can't check in at that point and then you haven't seen your your partner by midnight or the next morning uh at, at that point it's time time to raise the alarm but at the same time you know you should be communicating with your hunting partner if you're hunting with someone else that this is where i'm going uh this is when i expect to be back so at the point that you haven't checked in at at 30 minutes after sunset maybe your partner should be going out and and looking for you to an extent along that that easting or or whatever you're 
wherever you're going. Um, because shit happens. And you you have to have an emergency plan. Well, that, that's right. You know, Scott talked a little bit about, you know, maybe uh, marking two or three spots you want to hit that day or that you want to hunt that weekend. And if you just share those with the guys that are with you, like, I'm going to go here first, I'm going to go here second, I'm going to go here third, and then, you know, after that, I guess I'll come back and leave a note or something like that if I find a new spot I want to go hit. Um, then I have a pretty good idea of, okay, well, he's not at spot one or spot two or spot three. They have very, you know, pretty close, you know, maybe a, a you know, four or 500 yard radius from a certain spot that that they might go find you you know uh falling on a rock with a broken leg or some shit like that um and so yeah i think i think kind of communicating generally where you're gonna go how far you're gonna go and just what your plan is for that day it gives it gives the other person a pretty good idea of where to start looking for you if you don't come back you know by if you're not there for breakfast the next morning, maybe they go hunt where you went that day, and hopefully they run into you or or something along those lines. Right. And being an outdoorsman or men and women, we should have a basic understanding of if we get into trouble, we need to, to send some sort of signal. Uh, and and that comes down yeah, you to gotta, you got to know next steps. I mean, you know, broken leg or, or ho- I mean, hopefully you're conscious. That that would be the worst of the worst is if you're not conscious. But if you're conscious and you're in trouble, and knowing what those next steps are to make it so that that uh, help can get to you and and be able to locate you uh, is paramount. And self-care also on the field. you got to really think about that stuff, too, when you're so far from medical care. Is, you know, you break a leg, you gotta need, you need to know how to splint that leg and, you know, uh, fashion some half-assed crutch or something so you can maybe move to an area where you're not in deep cover and lay out uh, something like that. And so a little bit of first aid goes a long way when you're away from medical care as well. And that's one of those things, you know, they taught us in the military is that individual first aid. Um, and it, I was fortunate enough to be able to maintain the equipment from my individual first aid kit from the military. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were. <laughs> what happens when you're friends with the supply sergeant. You know, I, I asked, I asked uh, CIF, I said, do I need to turn this in? They said, oh, give it back to the medics. And I said, oh, I'm taking it home with me. Uh, but you know you keep a tourniquet is one of the the number one things i would say that you should carry with you because it's so light and it could literally save your life it will literally save your life if you need it yeah i mean the tourniquet is going to work in a compound fracture situation to keep you from dying it won't help you move anywhere but at least you won't bleed out because of some other you know you when you broke a bone and it severed an artery or something like that. No, you can apply a tourniquet and it'll keep you alive. Um, and so there are things like that. I know in the uh, the first aid kit I've got ready to go. You know, I've got everything from uh, moleskin and duct tape for blisters up to uh, a tourniquet and 
you know, combat gauze for for punctures and things like that. And so it, it does. It makes sense to just carry that stuff. I mean, it doesn't weigh anything. You know, the, I think the whole first aid kit you're looking at, probably what I have put together is is going to be. Uh, you know, right about this is less than a pound. I'm sure I haven't weighed it yet. I don't have a scale that goes that low. I'll tell you in grains. Regardless, <laughs> that <laughs> weight is irreplaceable when you need it. Even if it's ten pounds, that'll be ten pounds you wish you had when you need that first aid kit. Uh, one thing that uh, I, I can talk about. Uh, product that I, I did not discover on my own. I heard about on another podcast, but I can personally vouch for its effectiveness. Is some stuff called Luco Tape. It's like L E U K O, and this this tape once it sticks to your skin will not come off for like four days uh, without taking that layer of skin. So for for blisters. Uh, and stuff like foot injuries, you can put that in your boots and it, it'll stay right where you put it and take those hot spots right away from you. Um, but also in a, in a, a more serious situation, if, if you got to put, uh, put absorbent gauze or something like that on a, on a heavily bleeding wound, you, you do not have to worry about that stuff coming off. And so, uh, a, a roll of it will last you a very long time, and it's relatively cheap. And so I, I highly recommend Tape. And I speak from experience when I say this. Super glue works great as stitches. Yeah. Uh, having stabbed myself in the stomach last year while hunting, uh, I mean, it I, left a pretty I scar. I it left a pretty yeah, scar, I but the super glue. Uh, stab yourself in the gut. It, the super glue. Uh, the, the opinions expressed herein are not. Uh, <laughs> listen, the super glue worked well for stitches, and the beer gut saved me from hitting anything vital. <laughs> I'm surprised no lightning came out. <laughs> Drink beer and carry uh, super glue. <laughs> no, so I'm yep. looking at Luco tape right now. You got 15 yards, inch and a half wide. It's about nine bucks on Amazon. Um, yeah, I mean, it looks like looks like pretty good stuff. It's uh, it looks like uh, for blisters and things like that, you'd use it in the same way you would duct tape. That's why I carry a little bit of duct tape because when you start getting hot spots, you can slap some duct tape on there, and it'll it'll keep that hot spot from turning into a blister. Yeah, the real benefit over duct tape is that once duct tape gets wet and sweaty, doesn't want to stick. This stuff, you can put it on your feet, and it will be there for the rest of your hunting trip. Yeah, it's a, so. it's somewhat akin to like rock tape and those things, but I think the rock tape is probably three times the cost. And speaking from experience again, staples are far more, I say, far less painful than stitches. Without Novocaine, in my experience, I've had both. I've, I've had both without being numbed, and I would rather have you staple me shut than sew me shut. Yeah, uh, I can second that. Those skin staplers are are really awesome. Um, 
you know, the disadvantage is you got to have them taken out where a lot of stitches is just dissolved. But those things, even taking them out just feels good. Well, I'll tell you this. I took out my own stitches and my own staples with a pair of dykes and a pocket knife, and I had no problem with either one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can you can buy a preloaded skin stapler or st- skin stapler on Amazon for about fifteen bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're pretty awesome. So there's a there's a lot of things you can pack, and that in case of emergency, and you may look at that as extra weight, but when it comes down to needing it, you're going to be happy you have it. Yeah, and you you got to think about odds of needing it. Um, you know, stitches. The odds I'm going to need stitches. Mm, not very high. And I know it's going to suck having to stitch myself with a needle and thread, but the odds are lower, and so I might go that way. Um, but if you look at a different type of terrain, you might end up where you, I'm gonna I'm gonna need stitches, <laughs> and so you plan on something like a stapler. And so we're just kind of looking at the terrain and things like that that you're going to be in and make the best choice that you can with the information you've got. Right. Yeah. One, one thing I can say, like uh, a person like myself, not military, uh, I, I've trained in first aid, but um, not nearly to the level you all are. At a lot of these things that you guys are discussing, I'm not going to carry because I'm not going to know how to use it when I get to that situation. And so carrying it, uh, it, I'm going to need EMS at that point whenever I get into those situations. Uh, carrying it in there to me is, is, is a fruitless endeavor. It's, you know, just because I have it on me doesn't mean it's going to help you. So, so I, I would encourage people to think about, uh, you know, the things that they carry and choose them carefully and know how to use them if they're going to bring them. And if they're not going to bring them, or if they're not going to know how to use it, don't carry the weight. But, yeah. And uh, I think, uh, you know, going back to the tourniquet, very little weight, um, very easy to use. I can give you a five-minute class, and and you're ready to go. And it's worth, it's worth just having on you. I carry a tourniquet on me for almost every day. Um, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't cost you anything weight-wise. Um, and it could be, you know, most likely is going to be what you're going to need to fix a problem. They are. Yeah, well, they don't, don't even give me one if you're planning on having a bleeding head wound. <laughs> oh, well, those are, those are easy. <laughs> no, it's a sucking chest, it's a sucking chest wound that, that you got to worry about or armpit, armpit problems are the other problem. But, uh, yeah, tourniquet problems, those are easily solved by yourself <laughs> and, and you can pretty much take care of that. They're, they're pretty easy to install, and uh, you know you got what fourteen hours before you lose a limb or something now. But you know what? It even at that point, it, it is worth losing a limb over losing a life. I mean, I've got kids. You've got kids. I I, I would rather not have one of my limbs than not be there to raise my kids. And a tourniquet when you need it is worth ten times its weight in gold. Yeah, I I agree. And so, and they don't take long to learn either. And that's that's the other thing, big thing about a tourniquet is that they don't take long to learn. They're faster to install than you know uh, 
your your belt tourniquet. Yeah, you can use a belt or a bandana if you have to, but you know, a, tourni- a purpose-built tourniquet is going to be much quicker to install and easier if you have to do it on yourself. And and so I think it is something that you know, if you're going in the backwoods, watch a 10-minute video on YouTube, figure out how to install a tourniquet and carry one with you because and then practice on yourself. They're, they're, what, $12 or something for a tourniquet? They're a little more than that, but for a good one. Uh, And I would really recommend that you look at what the military uses and and go with that, uh, regardless of price, because they've done their research, and uh, they probably use them more than anyone else. Yeah, you're looking at the rats and the cat. uh, Yeah, the rats and the cat, I think. So, uh... We're coming to the end of this. What do you guys have for your under pressure outdoors tip of the week? Well, I'm going to say six, five weeks is not enough time to to get ready for a trip like this. Um, I I would say if you know decide you're going to take a trip like this, uh, maybe three to four months in advance. And then kind of prepare yourself, unless you've done it before and you've done multiple of them and you have the stuff that you need to do it. Um, I'm kind of running into the fact that, you know, I haven't done uh, anything that I didn't want to do since I got out of the Army to include walking anywhere with a backpack on. <laughs> and and so that's one of those things that's like I'm, I'm right now, uh, five weeks out, I had to start getting in shape, losing weight buying products and I'm on a very short time frame and so it's just a it's a lot of outgo without the ability to budget for it um, and so that for me I think has been my my biggest challenge with preparing for this thing has been uh, just the amount of time you know I can't I can't shop deals I can't um, you know reliably order things from certain places because who knows if they're going to show up in time and there's just uh, and then the COVID, you know, is another big thing going on because everybody's freaking out. You can't, it's, it's hard to find survival items because everybody's bought them up so they could store them in their attic <laughs> um, and then eventually take them to or sell them in a yard sale because, you know, when it all stops, they'll get rid of it because they don't want to keep it around. You get rid of that yard sale. So, <laughs> yeah, I want to go to that yard sale too. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, right now, somebody that I might actually need that stuff can't go find it because everybody's buying it in a panic. And, I mean, I'm not really in a panic, but it's just stuff that I need to go have fun for a hobby. <laughs> um, and that just kind of makes it a lot harder. That makes it a lot harder, I think, than, uh, than it normally would have been. But, yeah, uh, plant start earlier. You know, if you're, if you're planning on hunting in October, November, or something like that, maybe start in July or June and start kind of uh, making a plan, figure out where you're going to go and start gathering the gear you're going to need for the situation you're going to be in uh, when you're going to be hunting and just start kind of, uh, you know, gathering that stuff up so you have a little more time to get it ready, test it out, work it in and, uh, and prepare your body to be able to go and do something like this. So what do you got, Scott? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I see a lot of guys uh, come out and, and uh, uh, 
trying to hunt hunt deer in situations like this uh where, where you can't see them from a long distance off and and you have to be uh pretty sneaky about getting in on them and uh and these guys will cover uh 10 times the amount of ground that i will in the same amount of time and uh you know a lot of times here in california we have dry conditions everything's making noise um I, I think it's so important for people to remember that uh, that running around fast in the woods, covering a lot of ground doesn't do you any good if the deer are, are blowing out uh, way before you can ever see them. So I think it's very important uh, for people to be successful, to slow down, and then when they think they're going slow enough, uh, go 10 times slower than that. <laughs> and and uh get their get their glass out and look at everything and 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 uh i'm a firm believer that that binos are somewhat for seeing what's uh, what's far but they're every bit as important for seeing what's close uh because there's there's little little things that you'll catch uh where these animals are hiding out they may they may let you walk right past them because they know you're there and and they don't think you're going to cross them and and having a pair of glass on you that you're looking through uh just cutting everything up that you're walking through uh you're going to find those animals oftentimes they're not going to know you're there yet and you're going to have uh more shot opportunities on animals and and the shot opportunities that you do have are going to be on animals that that don't know you're there yet and they're going to be more ethical shots all around so i'm going to jump in on the big on the budget I don't know if you guys have downloaded this app yet, um, but it's called Camo Fire. <laughs> and, yeah, they have sales every single day that last for about 12 hours. And they may not always have what you want, but they check back the next day because they're going to have something. Um, and it's usually priced very well uh well, that goes back to starting early right the, mm -hmm. the trick Dang is it. having cash in hand uh to get out there and get those packs for cheap to get the clothes for cheap to get the gear whatever else gear you want tents whatever it is going to be pretty cheap on camo fire and i i'm constantly checking there i've got a little bit of money saved up just in case i see something i need to have uh, but you know, you never know what you're gonna find on there. But every twelve, every twelve hours, it's gonna change. So you keep up with that stuff, and you can find those packs for cheap, 60 seventy percent off. You can find other gear for cheap, 60 seventy percent off. You, you never know what you're gonna find, but every twelve hours, it's gonna change. So, what do you got, Briar? Oh man. Mm. Shoot, I don't know. I hadn't thought of it this week. There's much going on. <laughs> I hadn't been. I feel, um, like, I feel like I catch you off guard about every week we do this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I usually forget about it. And then, and then he goes, all right, it's time for the... Oh, crap. I didn't think about that. Um, I guess plan ahead. See? There how that works. <laughs> yeah. Plan ahead. Have, have a plan before you go out. Um... Like Tyke said, it may all go to shit when you get there, but, you know, have something. 
so you can at least know this is what I'm gonna doing and leave this leave that plan at home so somebody can know where you're at if something happens. Yeah, it's always good to have that emergency plan because you never know what's gonna happen and the proverbial shit could hit the proverbial fan really fast. And then you don't want to be left without a plan when that happens. It's always good to have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and a plan Z to cover every yeah, base you can come across. You also think about that, you know, uh, I know in the Army they always said, uh, what was that saying? One is none, two is one. Yeah. I think in a situation like this, so you always got to kind of keep in mind that you know, one is one, and two is too fucking many. <laughs> so when, when you're talking about paranoia, you sit on your back and uh, plans and shit like that. Um, you know that that weight and stuff it adds up quick. And if you're not used to walking around with fifty to seventy pounds on your back, uh, just kind of remember that when you have one, it is one. Um, especially if that one thing you have is uh, reliable and does what it does and does it well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, buy once, cry once, have one, and two's too fucking many. So, it, but that plan is weightless. Having that emergency plan is literally weighs nothing. Right. No, and that, the plan is fine. I'm just, I know a lot of people, you know, they, they come at this and they're like, well, yeah, I've got one flashlight, but if uh, that stops working, then I have zero. And it's like, no, buy a good flashlight, uh, bring extra batteries, and then just rely on what you've got and just know it's never failed me before. Why am I going to carry, you know, three flashlights? Because I'm worried that the one that I've been carrying for five years is going to die when it hasn't died in the last five years. Uh, and, it, yeah. it, it's, and you know when it comes to having a plan if if you are not if, if you have a certain amount of money to get into this and you can you can spend that money on just enough gear to get you there like a few hours of time spent learning how to be a better woodsman is going to be exponentially more valuable in the backwoods than uh than trying to get just a little bit more money together to get a different piece of gear that you don't have. That, that's the most important thing is is getting out there. When you get into a bad situation, your pants aren't down because you know how to get by on what's there. You know how to start fires. You know how to signal uh, for rescue. And, and you're not completely uh, lost whenever the gear that you bought fails on you. You can make it through the night, and if it's so bad that, that you got to leave the next day, well, you have to leave the next day, but you're alive and well when you make it out of there. And that, that comes from being a good woodsman. And one thing I want to touch on before we, we leave here, and oddly enough, this has become an actual movement on Instagram where you talk about backwoods hunting is the ass movement. The anti-surface shitting. You're going to do it over a period of a few days. It's going to happen. Just 
dig a hole and bury it. <laughs> oh, God. I wish they would. <laughs> I mean, that is just rotten to people. It happens everywhere, and you see it. And luckily enough, for the most of us, it is marked by white flagging tape covered in turd. <laughs> but, you know... You know what was the recent, uh, uh, recent thing I was informed about is that if you really want to be a nice guy, not only do you dig a hole, but then you take a, a stick after you've recovered it and, and it looks like nothing happened there, you take that stick and you place it up next to the tree that you use uh, for a little bit of privacy so that when another guy comes along and they find a nice privacy tree, they see, well, that stick looks kind of unusual there. I don't think I'm going to go digging around the base of that tree. <laughs> you know, that's taking the extra step right there. I'll, yeah, tell you, uh, I'll tell you a quick funny story real quick. Uh, when I was on, we were stationed at Fort Campbell. I had gone out to scout for deer under the lure of hunting squirrels. And I parked, and I didn't see another truck anywhere, and I was good to go. And I got about 50 yards into the woods, and Mother Nature called. So I searched for a good spot. I dug my hole, found my tree. I'm, I'm, I'm good to go, and uh, I did my business. And about the time I finished and I covered it up, I looked to my right, and about 30 yards away, <laughs> there was a gentleman sitting there wearing blaze orange now that I swear was not wearing blaze orange when I started this endeavor. <laughs> well, I'm not quite visible enough, I guess. He, uh, he got quite the show, to say the least. <laughs> but uh, orange, orange will keep you safe from seeing uh, my high men. He was well hidden. That's the tip of the week right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> check, double check, and triple check when you're on public land. But uh, I really appreciate you guys joining us this week, and I look forward to talking to you guys after you get this hunt done so we can uh, we can talk about how it went. Hopefully it was successful. Yeah, right on. Yep, sounds good, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. You guys have a great, uh, great night. You too.